0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders in the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is from our Hot Topic series, and we'll discuss a new biologic treatment for asthma. The information discussed today will be applicable for patients, the general public, and medical professionals as well. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Roxana Siles to our episode today. Dr. Siles is an allergist in the Department of Allergy and Clinical Immunology at the Cleveland Clinic, where she also serves as the co-director of the Asthma Center. Dr. Siles' area of interest lies in the management of severe asthma and addressing health disparities related to asthma. Dr. Siles is the current chair Of the american academy of allergy asthma and immunology asthma cough diagnosis and treatment committee with that dr stiles thank you so much for taking time off your schedule to join us today and welcome to the show thank you for having me
1: i appreciate it
0: well no, your expertise is going to be uh very helpful as we understand this new treatment but before we get into that i'd like to learn a little bit more about you if we may and much of your career is really focused on asthma if you don't mind sharing, what drew your interest towards this condition, and why do you find it so fulfilling?
1: Well, as you know, asthma is a common condition, and it affects millions of people across the world. And I I find that it has a huge impact in the quality of life of many of our patients. Um, what drew me in this um, area is a tremendous amount of research uh, that has been taking place in the last few years and now we have um different forms of therapies that can really make a huge impact in the lives of our patients. Um I find that very rewarding and um, that's why I you know I I've been more dedicated to uh asthma care.
0: Yeah, I it's very exciting times for asthma in regards to better understanding diagnosis and treatment and we're going to talk about a lot of these these different breakthroughs very soon. Uh, Before we get into that, we do have a very broad audience of listeners typically, and I think it might be useful just to make sure everybody's starting with the same background information. So along those lines, can you start with just a basic description of what asthma is so everybody understands, and then from there we can discuss some of the important differences?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, So, you know, asthma is a chronic condition of the airways, and it is uh, driven by inflammation. I think that's the key fact um, and inflammation is triggered by allergens uh, viruses irritants and um, in turn inflammation contributes to bronchoconstriction so this leads to symptoms of cough or wheeze or shortness of breath or the sensation of chest tightness um, it's also important to know that it seems like no two patients are alike Um, Some may only cough while others may only wheeze. um, And then we have others who have all of those symptoms. Um, And, you know, we also have those patients who may experience asthma symptoms only related to exercise, whereas others may have more problems uh, around their cat. Um, So I think it's a very, uh, you know, heterogeneous and uh, fascinating uh, disease.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, some of why you're so passionate about asthma is just how much we've learned over the last 10 to 20 years, and especially regarding different types of asthma. So along those lines, what do the words phenotype and endotype mean? Can you help us better understand that? Yes,
1: I think those are very important terms to uh, help understand this condition. Um, so phenotype referred to recognizable clinical characteristics or actual demographic features of the condition. Um, so it is, um, you know, it seems like the more we learn about asthma, the more we find patients who have different subtypes of the disease. Um, when it comes to endotypes, well, that is actually a term used to describe the mechanism at the cellular level or the molecular level. And I think it's important to review some of the key players involved in asthma. Um, So I can um, certainly just do a quick brief overview. Um, You know, we definitely have those T cells that are in the asthmatic airway. Um, They produce cytokines, some of which we uh, all recognize, like IL-4, IL-5. IL-13 and IgE. And then we have these cytokines that play a key role in inflammation and allergic cascade that is um, associated with asthma.
0: And so that would go along with endotypes. Can you tell us about some of the main asthma phenotypes? Because as you mentioned, that's more of like a clinical characteristics, correct? Absolutely. So uh,
1: the Some of the phenotypes that are common in asthma include allergic. um, We also have um, non-allergic, aspirin-sensitive asthma, occupational asthma, eosinophilic asthma, and non-eosinophilic asthma. So each of these phenotypes have their own characteristics, um, which I think is fascinating.
0: Mm. Now, is this just something that we need to worry about in some research laboratory, or is it important for clinicians to actually consider each patient's specific asthma phenotype? And if so, you know, does that change management in any way?
1: Absolutely. I think the more we learn about asthma, the more um, it becomes important for clinicians to understand this, uh, because by understanding the characteristics and biomarkers, um, it gives us the opportunity to personalize the management for each patient. Um so, you know, we are moving to precision based care and I think these are the tools that we need to uh really um make a big impact in patients' lives.
0: Oh, I love that. Personalized and what do you I the term you use precision based care. Is that what you said?
1: That's exactly right, yes. Yeah
0: yeah I like that i may I may steal that from me if that's okay um, so speaking of tools, what are some of the tools that clinicians can utilize? What tests do we have to identify these different phenotypes?
1: you know i I think one important tool that we tend to forget and I think it's one of the most important tools is actually just taking a very detailed history. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's very important to really um, understand what the patient's symptoms are, uh, what the triggers, their environment, social circumstances. I think that really can help. Um, But when it comes to objective tools, uh, we are, you know, we definitely have blood testing. Uh, We have skin testing at our disposal, um, breathing tests. So some of the important tools would be checking IgE levels or eosinophil counts. Um, Spirometry and Excel nitric oxide tests have also been very helpful in helping uh, assess asthma.
0: And before we get into some specifics about biologics and how we really use our understanding of the immune system to truly personalized care, can you just touch base with the different types of asthma medications available? Uh, And I know that always causes a lot of confusion for patients.
1: Yeah, no, I I think um, that's very true. So, you know, I think the way I think of asthma is you definitely have that inflammatory component, which what we discussed, but also we have that bronchoconstriction component. Um, So for this reason, uh, therapies like in Inhaled steroids, um, antileukotrienes, anticholinergics, bronchodilators have been used uh, as first line of therapy of, of asthma for many years. Um, now there are new and updated, updated guidelines that help address the proper use of these medications. Um, but most recently, we're entering. Um, you know, biologic therapy, which is, uh, has been very important in management of severe, particularly of moderate to severe asthma. And uh, biologic therapy can help uh, target at the root level or the mediator level. So it's really focusing on those inflammatory, um, you know, proteins and, and um, mediators that are at the root of inflammation and asthma.
0: Uh, can you tell us just in you know generic terms what is a biologic what do you mean by that
1: Sure so uh biologics are a variety of products um that are either derived from human or animals um and they are created uh using biotechnology um so some of these biologic agents contain proteins or antibodies that Suppress or activate components of the immune system or uh, the inflammatory response.
0: And you mentioned that these are a little different than some of the classes of medications. Uh, you know, there are broad classes that sort of treat various you know types of inflammation and things like that, whereas biologics target specific parts of the immune system. So, what what types of biologics or what targets have been employed for the last decade or so in regards to asthma management?
1: Yeah so the first biologic that we had our um that we've been using was omalizumab um and omalizumab targets IgE and it is a a terrific add-on therapy for management of allergic asthma um but over the most recent years we've seen other biologics that block IL5 or the eosinophilic pathway so these include things like mepolizumab rizlizumab, and venrilizumab. Um, and then, as time went by, we also found other biologics that target, um, you know, the IL-4, IL-13 pathway. For example, the dupilumab is one that targets the alpha subunit of the IL-4 receptor, so it blocks the effects of IL-4 and IL-13. And what's exciting is that uh, just recently there is um, uh, because the plumab, which is the first of its kind, and that one targets the uh, thymic stromal lymphopoietin, uh, which is short for uh, TSLP, is short for uh, thymic stromal lymphopoietin, um, and this is produced by the by the endothelial layer in the airway.
0: Okay, so um, sounds like there have been three specific sort of targets up until now with the new introduction of. Tezepelumab, which focuses on this TSLP. And before we get into specifics of that, can you just speak to, in general terms, you mentioned add-on therapy for zolair and omalizumab. Uh When should biologics be considered in general for treatment of asthma? Is this something that people should be started on, you know, the first day they're diagnosed, or uh, when should we think about this in the, in the algorithm?
1: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we do have great guidelines that help us um uh, manage asthma but biologic therapy should be considered as add-on for treatment of moderate to severe asthma that's not controlled despite uh, appropriate therapy and this is a form of therapy that we should consider in patients who have recurrent exacerbations um you know asthma related emergency room visits or hospital stays or frequent need for or- oral steroids um, we also have to consider those who have persistent symptoms uh despite having met therapy um, and we use you know asthma control questionnaires to assess control for that um, but yeah it, it the goal here is to uh, really do a step up fashion approach in the management of asthma and uh, really try to get control with other other forms of therapy um, before we think about biologics
0: okay well all right let's go back to the the new biologic that's the focus of today's conversation the tezepelumab. and you mentioned tslp uh yes. before that you talked about eosinophils and interleukin 5 and interleukin 4 and things like that so tell us more about this tslp and and how that contributes to asthma
1: so, TSLV uh, is at the top of inflammatory cascade. And what it does, it is triggered by viruses, pollutants, um, allergens, bacteria, and other stimuli. And this leads to allergic inflammation, eosinophilic inflammation, and it stimulates both, uh, it stimulates TH2-driven mechanisms, but also TH2 independent mechanisms. Um, so I think it's a you know key player in asthma.
0: And when they conducted the clinical trials to investigate tezapelumab, did they select specific types of patients? or did they really focus on those who only had eosinophilic asthma or TH2 inflammation or anything like that? Uh, and what outcomes did they look at in these studies as well?
1: Yeah, so there were two key studies that looked at uh, the role of tisipilumab for treatment of severe asthma. Um, one of the studies is called the PATHWAY study, and what that was was a phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial using tisipilumab at three different doses versus placebo, and they enrolled, um, you know, they had 550 patients in the study, and they um, monitor them for 52 weeks. And what they found in that study is that at the current FDA-approved dose, which is 210 milligrams every four weeks, the cefilumab decreased exacerbation rates by 71% compared to placebo. And what was nice to see is that it didn't matter um, whether they had high eosinophil counts or low eosinophil counts, it it showed uh, benefit. Um, The second study that's key was uh, the navigator study, and that was a phase three multi-center randomized double placebo double-blind placebo-controlled trial of over a 1,000 patients, and these were aged 12 to 80 um, with severe uncontrolled asthma. And they were randomized to receive tisipulumab, 210 milligrams every four weeks versus placebo for 52 weeks. The endpoint of the study also as a patients with eosinophil counts less than 300 cells per microliter, and the treatment group showed fewer exacerbations, improved lung function, um, improved asthma control and quality of life, and this was also found to be true irrespective of eosinophil levels, Um, and the navigator study showed 56% decrease in asthma exacerbation, so um, very exciting to see that.
0: Mm -hmm. And I I like seeing the clinical outcomes of asthma exacerbations as opposed to just looking at markers of lung function or or things like that. So it sounds like these were pivotal trials, as you mentioned. Did they find any significant adverse reactions through the clinical trials or anything we need to inform patients about?
1: Yes. So, uh, you know, with any injection type of medications, we always worry about injection site reactions. But, you know, the adverse events were really minimal. There were reports of uh, nasopharyngitis, arthralgias, and back pain. But um, that was seen in 4% of patients compared to 3% of
0: patients in the placebo arm. So
1: very, um,
0: very safe. Mm-hmm. Okay, what are the details regarding administration and prescribing Uh, You know, how's it dose? Uh, how is it administered? Are there age restrictions? Uh, tell us a little bit more.
1: Yeah, so what is nice is that this drug is uh, this product is approved for ages twelve and up, um, so adolescents and adults, and it the dose is the same. Uh, there's no need to adjust to based on the weight or age. Um, it is a standard dose of two hundred ten milligrams every four weeks. It is administered subcutaneously. Um, it comes with a prefilled syringe um, so it's a you know pretty easy standard dosing, which makes it nice. There is no um, risk of anaphylaxis that was noted in the studies, which is um, very nice.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, uh, help us understand how to find the, the best patient, the proper patient selection for tezapelumab, and how that differs from the other biologics currently available. Uh, you spent a lot of time talking about phenotypes and biomarkers and things like that. Uh, how can we add this to the milieu, and how do we decide when to use tezapelumab?
1: Yes. Yeah, so what makes tezapelumab unique is that it fills a special need, which is the ability to treat patients Who did not qualify for other biologics um, in the past, um, you know, based on their biochemical profile. So, particularly for those who had low eosinophils or had low IgE levels. So, again, this definitely is a good opportunity to um, use a, a new form of therapy in this group of patients um but yeah it's not uncommon to see patients who qualify for more than one biologic and this could be based on their biochemical or uh, you know or phenotype if you if you will um so some of the factors we always have to consider when starting a biologic includes you know any age restrictions the form of administration whether it's in the office or at home and Frequency, and of course, if there are any other comorbid conditions. So, um, shared decision making definitely plays a key role when considering
0: uh, biologic agents. Mm-hmm. What about head to head studies with these different biologic treatment options in asthma? Do we have any of those studies to look at as well?
1: Um, so, unfortunately, to my knowledge, I don't believe there's any clinical studies that compare one biologic from another at this time.
0: Mm, okay. Well, help us think through patients who are already receiving one type of biologic, and maybe there are clinical indications to transition to another one, uh, particularly if they're not responding well and and they continue to have exacerbations or symptoms. Uh, Is this something that should be stopped all at once? Uh, Should sort of one be tapered as the other one is started? Do you have any thoughts on this clinical conundrum?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, that question comes up uh, quite frequently in our clinic. Um, but, you know, there are no set guidelines regarding this continuation or switching between biologics. Um, there's limited data regarding whether we should overlap or have a washout period between biologics. So, you know, obviously, we need to consider potential adverse effects or, you know, the cost of doing this. Um, now, I do uh, understand that there are some case reports that show clinical improvement um, and it, it, an improved control when switching, say, from a mab to mab or mab or dupilumab, um, they, there's also some data to suggest that, uh, you know, th- that looked at switching without any washout period, and what we found is that there is Um, There is improvement of asthma control, uh, lung function, and reduction of asthma exacerbations, and it did not result in adverse effects. Um, So, therefore, you know, it's potentially feasible to just stop without a washout period, but clearly there is, um, you know, opportunity for more research in this area.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think your perspective is very helpful uh, for our listeners, and we'll certainly direct everybody to just continue to follow the, follow the Academy website and any communications regarding updates or new tools that can help clinicians best utilize biologics for their patients. Well, you've really discussed some exciting you know, times in regards to just options that we have available to help all, all of our patients with asthma uh, succeed and gain control. Uh, do we still have knowledge gaps regarding biologics or other ways to treat asthma?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um this is a growing field for sure, but um some of the some of the questions we have, like long term effects of biologic therapy, um, or the use of biologics in certain populations, such as the very young or the very old or in pregnancy, those are areas that we still need to gain a better understanding. But I, I'm confident that research is definitely uh on its way.
0: Sure. Well, let's talk about your interest in, in healthcare disparities. Can you help us understand why it's important to make sure that we have underrepresented minorities included in clinical trials in the first place?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I think it's not only ethnic or racial groups that are um, underrepresented in research, but like as, as I mentioned before, you know, elderly oftentimes is not included as much in research. And the other thing that's important to highlight is that asthma is heterogeneous disease and, you know, genetics, the environment, social determinants of health, All can affect asthma care. So I think it's very important to focus on different groups of patients, um, to get a better understanding. Now, I, one thing I didn't mention is I'm originally from Bolivia, so perhaps you heard some of my accent along the way. Uh, so I'm Spanish, excuse me, I'm Spanish speaking, and, um, what got me interested in health disparities is, when I learned that asthma disproportionately affects certain groups, um, you know, so for example, asthma mortality rates among African Americans and Puerto Ricans are three times higher than those among Caucasians. Um, And same goes for their emergency room visits and hospital rates. Um, So again, a lot of opportunity to do more.
0: Well, along those lines, if we know that asthma does um, disproportionately affect certain groups, do we know if these same groups, especially those from underserved areas, have access to these biologic treatments that you've discussed? And if not, how can we make a difference in that realm?
1: Yeah. So, you know, access to overall, uh, overall health care is um, definitely a big hurdle for certain patient populations, you know. Um missing work to go to a doctor's office, you know, that alone. And, and of course, the cost of medications can also be prohibited uh, um, and contribute to poor asthma control. Um, The good news is that there are some patient assistance programs that can help fill the gap and make these types of medications more accessible, but there's always room to do more and um, help um, those patients in need.
0: Sure. Well, as we sort of wrap up here, uh, I do like to ask our guests to make predictions, knowing that, well, of course, we'll never hold you uh, to anything that you say here. Uh, but it, I think it helps offer some insight into how experts such as yourself you know, think about uh, progress in different areas. So if you're up for it and if you had to predict, do you think that we'll ever find a cure for asthma uh, and why or why not? Great question. So I, I...
1: I still don't believe we'll find a cure, Um, and I think the reason for that is because it is such a heterogeneous condition, so again, no two people are the same. Um, However, I do believe we've come a very long way, particularly in the last uh, few years, and we have better ways to understand asthma and treat this condition. Um, So I think research is going to continue to get better and better, and we can definitely make a huge impact in the lives of our patients um, in years to come.
0: Dr. Stiles, you've been more than generous with your time today. I think this was an extremely helpful conversation regarding this exciting new treatment option for all of our patients with asthma. And before we depart, are there any other final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Um, No, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you, um, Dave, for what you're doing for our listeners. And also, I want to thank the Quad AI for allowing me to participate in this podcast.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.